You guys, do, being the readers, you guys should have your own reality show. It would just be perfect. I'd watch it. I really would. I'd watch it. All right. Well, I'm really glad to be here. My name is Jimmy, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus who struggles with codependency, anger, and food addiction. Hey, guys. I've shared my testimony here before. It was a while back. But I always love coming here every chance I get because this place rocks, man. This place is alive in this room. So, yeah. And I, I you know, to, to quote Scott, I needed this too. I needed this too. It just a lot of stuff going on in, in my life and in our family's lives. This is my lovely uh, wife, Tanya, over here. Hey, Tanya, everybody. And, um, but man, that worship was awesome. We, I'm from the Southeast. I, I grew up in the, in the Southeast. And they would say something like, uh, if that worship doesn't light your fire, then your wood's wet. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I got to get started, too. I, 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 can, I can float off to other things just like Scott can. That's pretty scary. I, I don't even know where the clock is. So here we go. Uh, I am a grateful believer in Christ. I said all that. My name is Jimmy. I was born into a very dysfunctional family. Surprise, surprise. At three years old, my parents divorced, leaving uh, the three of us kids to be raised by our mother. My dad remarried and went about living his life without us while we lived our life with our mom, who never remarried. Uh, this left a giant hole for my dad's attention in my, in my life, and uh, I, I longed for his approval, and that stayed with me for a very long time. Living with my mom was not easy. She lived much of her life as an emotionally crippled woman. Her method of coping and soothing her pain was to blame other people for her problems and escape into her uh, addiction to prescription drugs. As I grow older and can better examine my memories of my mom, I see how these drugs were present and affecting her much of the time that, uh, that I can remember of my whole life. What I didn't see as a little boy that she was teaching me how to blame others how to be negative, how to be scared, and how to be angry, and how to escape reality. At times, in one of her uh, drug-induced rages, she would say to me and my siblings hurtful things like, um, we ruined her life, and we were the reason her life was so bad, and that if we weren't born, her life would have been so much better. Yeah, and as a little boy, I believed what my mom said, both verbally and with her actions. My mom's outbursts of anger uh, towards me pushed me further and further down. I lived my very young years feeling guilty. Guilty for my mother's problems in her life and for her life being so terrible. Since I was too little to understand and appropriately process all that guilt, uh, feeling both guilty and responsible for other people's problems became a part of my DNA. Her blaming us kids taught me that others, other people's pain is probably my fault. And if I can't fix that pain, then I'm the failure. I learned to believe that if I want to be noticed and loved, I must be the one to fix others' pain and problems. With my mother, it was all about her and what I was doing to make her feel better. This was how the seeds of my codependency were planted in the soil of me. When I was about the age of eight, <clears throat> um, while living in New Jersey, my mom began a serious relationship with the man she worked with. My mom at the time was a dispatcher for the police department in West Milford, New Jersey, where I was actually born there and lived there till I was 10. Um, it just so happens that this fellow whose name, his first name is Noble, which I just share that for the irony, um, he was a lieutenant in the, in the police department. 
From the start, when he came around to the house, he seemed funny, cool, and nice uh, to my older siblings and me. And he, he seemed to make my mom happy. He ended up moving in with us. And for me, it was kind of cool to have a man in the house. We actually did what felt like family-type things. We went camping, going to the drive-ins, stuff like that. I remember one of the times we were camping in Virginia, Chincoteague, Virginia, and I made a friend with a kid at a nearby campsite. We were hanging out, we came back to my campsite, and I remember I introduced this kid to Noble, but out of, out of what just felt like automatic, I referred to Noble as my dad. It just came out. I wanted a dad so bad that I couldn't even stop myself from seeing him as that person. After living with us for about two years, Noble suddenly quit his job as a lieutenant in the police department. He moved out of our house and he moved across the state line into New York State and lived with my uncle. This is confusing to me. I remember our mom telling us that it had to do with him not paying his back child support. So I believed it. We would go visit him a lot at my uncle's house. It wasn't very far away. And a few times my mom would drop me off to visit with him on my own. During one visit, I could tell he was very drunk. And I hadn't ever seen him like this before. I remember having a sick feeling in my stomach. And I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't understand it when I saw him this way. And this is when I began to feel really scared uh, being around him. After several months of a noble living with my uncle, he and my mother decided that we should move to Stewart, Florida, where my grandparents, my mom's parents, lived, and we could start a new life. In order to help keep Noble's location a secret from the police, who apparently were still after him, I wasn't allowed to say goodbye to my friends. Looking back, I see that this was a strong introduction into how to run from my problems. Once we moved into our house in Florida, Noble's drinking escalated. Over time, he continued to drink more and more, becoming more and more volatile. His, uh, his unpredictable anger led him to, at times, to becoming very violent. It was mostly towards my mom, but it was also towards us kids. My brother and I shared a bedroom. Many nights, we were woken up by the sounds. The sounds of Noble and my mom fighting. We could hear the violence unfolding outside our bedroom door. I felt scared and helpless. During these scary nights, I also didn't know what was going to happen next. My young mind would wonder, what if he really kills her? Because that's what he would say as they were fighting and as he was being violent to her. And I thought, what if he really kills her? And if, if, he, if he did kill her, would he then come and kill us? These were tough things for an 11-year-old to ponder. It, it was the definition of chaos. The chaos of those events burned deep into my heart, and I couldn't control the situations, but I felt so guilty and helpless to save my mom, to stop the violence, and to make her pain go away. The pressure looking back on me was so much more than I knew at the time. Marinating in a culture of chaos, fear, and misplaced responsibility led me to begin my coping strategies that involved escape. Life at a young age was heavy, uh, almost unbearable at times. I just wanted to numb the pain and to escape all at the old age of 11 years old. As an 11-year-old sixth grader, I had my first experience with alcohol. My sister and I went next door to her friend Ramona's house 
where we got into her dad's liquor cabinet. This was the first time I ever got drunk. This was the age that I also had my first of many experiences of smoking pot. Noble and my mom would smoke it in the bedroom, and when they weren't home, um, my sister and I would steal it and go smoke it. That was really brilliant. Um, <laughs> then one day, seemingly out of the clear blue sky, my mom told us that she had enough, and she decided to move us out and away from this man. The tension in the air in that house as we packed our stuff was so thick, you could cut it with, <coughs> with a knife. <coughs> Unfortunately, my very last few minutes with Noble was of a violent nature. While I was packing some stuff in the living room and everybody was spread out through the house, packing also, in a drunken rage, he turned on me and everybody came running from the sound and got me out of there. That was my last encounter I ever had with Noble. And we never spoke about what happened. There was no family discussion, no processing, no counseling, no encouragement, no love, no protection. I was on my own to process all that happened. The power and rage Noble unloaded on me hurt down to my core, and all we did was pretend like it never happened. One strong lesson of how to bury my reality and live in denial. By this time, about the age of 12, I was pretty sad. I had already begun drinking, smoking pot, trying to fit in and escape my sadness. Even after we left Noble and we moved one street over, yeah, right? That's uh, a true story. Um, life at home was still tough. When my brother graduated, he's five years older from high school, he immediately moved back to New Jersey to be with his friends and closer to our dad. Also at this time, my sister was getting into a bad crowd and she was never home. So basically, it was my mom and me for the next several years. I was the only one left she could unload on. She took out her anger and bitterness at the world on me. The sense of me being responsible for her life at this time was stronger than ever. The role as a responsible one, the fix-it one, um, not just for her, but for others as well, was growing stronger and stronger all the time. The need to be accepted, loved, validated, led me to the point of being willing to do whatever it would take to fit in somewhere. Living at home with my mom was also where my anger began to show big time. I hated the weight and the guilt my mom put on me. She and I would lose our minds in anger and fighting at each other. We would have screaming fights that would literally leave us without voices. Oh, how I looked for the ways to escape. Girls, trying to be popular, drinking, lust, being the chameleon, trying to fit in everywhere. Those are my coping strategies. Fast forward a couple years to me at 15 years old, my best friend John and I that, that I had known throughout middle school and high school uh, and witnessed much of my life um, unfolding, uh, he began dating a girl named Shannon. Shannon led him to the Lord and... Through the course of events, after John surrendered his life to Christ, he led me to the Lord. So at age 15, I gave my heart to Christ. Yeah, praise God. I got involved with the youth group at the church uh, that he was going to, and I loved it. I finally found a place that felt safe. 
I felt at home in the youth group, made some great friends, had a great youth pastor, and I felt like I could finally breathe. I wish I could say it all got better at that point. That would be great. End of story. But that's not the end of the story. Home life was still hard. I still had to go home to my mom, and my mom and I continued to fight horribly. I knew she was miserable, and she was angry. She was ready to fight at a moment's notice. And I continued to live with that sense of deep responsibility for her situation and a deep yearning to escape my situation, which seemed to be getting worse and worse uh, every day. Even as a Christian, I still felt the need to find love and acceptance throughout high school any way I could. I pretty much gave up the partying scene, but I replaced that with one unhealthy relationship after another. I was still so needy, so insecure, and so hungry for somebody to love me. My youth pastor was instrumental to my spiritual growth in high school. I grew spiritually during high school, and in a way that only God would be able to explain, like why he chose me, I felt a call to full-time ministry during my senior year of high school. So I graduated from high school. I enrolled in college in West Palm Beach, which is 50 miles south of where we lived at Palm Beach Atlantic College. And in my second year of college, I was finally able to get Tanya to date me. That took work. We are now on year 32 of marriage. Yeah. 32 years in a row. So proud of that, right? Five kids. So from the beginning of our marriage and for several years into it, we had big problems. I transferred all my unresolved anger and sadness and angst from my mom onto Tanya. I had hoped of getting, I hoped that getting married would be the cure-all for all my issues, but boy, it was not. During our first 10 years of marriage, I did some pretty hurtful things and I said many more. I had never learned how to stand on my own two feet or deal with my struggles before marriage. And, and, and going into marriage like that made things really difficult. I also felt this continuing need to be responsible for Tanya's stuff in her life, just like I used to feel with my mom. Her happiness meant I was good. Her unhappiness meant I was bad. I was a confused mess. A few years into our marriage, I began working on my master's degree. This is a true story. How ironic, right? I began working on my master's degree in all of things, marriage and family therapy. This mess right here. And worse than that, it was in Mississippi where I went to school. And I must have had some deep subconscious drive uh, and by the way, at this time too, I was also uh, an uh, assistant pastor at a church. And so I say all that to say, I must have had some deep subconscious drive to make a career out of my codependency. Because while in grad school in Mississippi, I decided to go see a counselor. I was not super excited to go talk to a counselor. I'm starting to be one, but I'm too good to talk to one is essentially what it was. So I wasn't excited to go talk about my struggles, but I went. And on my very first visit, as I was explaining, as I was unpacking why I was there, like five minutes into it, the therapist stopped me in mid-sentence. He literally held up his hand like a police officer to get me to stop, like I'm just driving, not paying attention. And, and he said to me, literally five minutes into it, he says, I got to tell you something. I've counseled thousands of people, but you are... By far, he had to add that, by far, the most guarded person I've ever 
met. I didn't know what to say about that. I didn't know how to compute that. Like on one hand, I'm like, yeah, I'm good at something. But then on the other hand, I'm like, well, I don't even get that. My denial kicked in quick, quickly and, I, and began to tell me that this guy must be the nut in this room. The therapist's goal, however, was to help me get in touch with my anger and sadness towards my mom. And he kept saying that. I was sad. He tried, but to no avail, uh, because I thought I am a grad student studying MFT at a Christian college, by the way, makes me extra better. And I am a minister. I know what I'm doing, I would tell myself. I can handle it. Uh, It was like my issues... We're trying to rise to the surface to be dealt with, and I was trying to bury them back down. Kids came along shortly thereafter, and, ha- and having kids freaked me out since my childhood of my own was pretty tough. There's a saying that says, pressure is what you feel when you're not prepared. And pressure is all I felt about being a dad at first. My feelings of inadequacy fueled my fear of being a dad, which in turn fueled my anger and rage. So therefore, enough to say, my kids felt the weight of my anger way too often as well. After finishing grad school with my master's degree, it seemed at this, uh, it seemed at this point in life, I found a way to keep going forward in this weird tension and balance of having dealt with some of my stuff, but also living Uh, in denial at the same time about the unresolved issues that I kept buried. It was kind of a survival existence kind of of living. I served in several churches uh, between the years of 1996 and 2005. Throughout those years, my role was always uh, worship and counseling pastor. In 2005, though, uh, that changed. Uh, In 2005, October 2005, I was uh, invited to join the staff of a pretty large church in Savannah, Georgia, Savannah Christian Church, and I was brought on board to help them launch an in-house Christian counseling center. And so we opened the doors to what was called Life Change Christian Counseling Center in March of 2006. But during that same year, that right after I got there, as a matter of fact, I came across a small group of people, about eight or nine people, mixed gender, meeting in a group that met weekly for recovery. And I knew the guy, his name was Ben, who was leading the group. And they were using Celebrate Recovery materials that someone had bought at a garage sale, right? But they were also using other materials as well. And I'd heard about several uh, about Celebrate Recovery several years earlier, and so I felt compelled. <coughs> Excuse me. I felt compelled to ask the church leadership if Ben and I could go to a CR One Day conference near Atlanta to learn more about how to make this uh, fly. Needless to say, uh, they said yes. Ben and I went and came back pumped, ready to go. We we're able to convince. Uh, the leadership that we should go all in. So September of 06, we launched Celebrate Recovery. Now, yeah, incredible. <laughs> now, my thinking at the time, since I've never dealt with my stuff, my thinking at the time was I would run this ministry for those people who need this stuff. But God had other plans for me. About six months in after we started, Celebrate Recovery was going really, oh, thanks. I took a drink. Oh, uh, 
I saw you out of the corner of my eye and I almost yelled for security. <laughs> All right. It totally threw me off. Okay, where am I? Um, okay, about the, excuse me. It's so embarrassing to drink in front of people. But it could be worse. Okay. About the six-month mark, um, celebrate recovery is going really strong, yet something was stirring in me uh, from deep down. I couldn't help but notice that people's lives were being transformed all around me. I felt like uh, a kid looking through the window of the candy store while everybody else is inside just having their way, having a good old time, right? Secrets that they had held for so long were, were coming out, and they were finding freedom and hope. And all that showed me was that I didn't have that peace. Something was wrong. I knew what I needed to do. We were just starting our first step study, and I knew I needed to get in it. But the question was, how? How can the ministry leader join his first step study in front of all these people that he's leading how could I admit that I didn't know what I was doing about recovery, that I had struggles inside, that I didn't have it all together like I pretended, that I might not be everything to everyone? What if people didn't like me after they saw who I truly was? The fear was nobody will like me. The fear was I will get fired because I was on staff. And the, my fear was rejection. That was, that was the heart of it. But I believe through the grace of God, I had a moment of clarity and the gift of desperation. And I could, for the first time ever, finally say my desire to be free outweighed my fear of rejection. So I decided, yeah. So I decided to jump into a step study, get a sponsor, and do it right. I knew there was something to this, and I badly wanted it. What I feared the most never materialized. No rejection. As a matter of fact, the, the, guy, the other guys in my step study thought it was the coolest thing ever that the ministry leader was going through his first step study. I was suddenly surrounded by 11 other coaches, right? I almost felt like their mascot or their mission, right? They, they were just pouring into me. And the facilitator of that step study, Todd, became my sponsor. And just up till recently, he had been my sponsor for the last 16 years that I've been in Celebrate Recovery. Yeah. Now, going through the step study was great until the inventory. Because remember, I'm the most guarded person that counselor ever saw. And I probably still was. But I had to keep going. Everything in me wanted to find a way around being totally honest. My fear of being exposed as a failure, being rejected, embarrassed, abandoned, uh, that fear was strong, but I decided to go for it anyway. I wrote my inventory, scheduled a, Todd, a time for Todd and I to sit and go over it. I read my inventory to Todd out loud, and when it was over, much to my surprise, Todd did not fall over dead. He did not say, how could you call yourself a Christian, a pastor, a counselor, a worship leader, a CR leader? Man, I had a lot of badges in my life, a lot of credentials, got me nowhere. Instead, Todd showed love. He gently gave me perspective on who I was, where I'd been, and where I can be going. He then looked at me and said, follow me. We were meeting in a public park, and I followed him over to a nearby garbage can. He prayed over me, 
And when he finished praying, he took my inventory and he lit it on fire. And as it burned, I felt the freedom come over me like never before. The diminishing power of my secrets that had held me for so long, along with the visual of my old story going up in flames, was awesome. Going through a step study allowed me to realize several things that were critical to the transformation of my life. Number one, I learned that my battles are not against my mom, my dad, noble, or anyone else. It's not against outward behaviors called addictions to codependency, anger, or lust. It's against the defects of character. My battle is for the inside, and that's where God wants to heal me and develop me and free me. Number two, I learned that, that although I was able to achieve sobriety with certain behaviors, and those behaviors may have laid dormant for several years, it didn't mean recovery had taken place in my life yet. I learned that sobriety and recovery are two very different things. I had stopped or curtailed some of my outward behaviors and acting out, but I never let God to go deep down inside and do the underground excavation in my life that I needed to be totally free. Number three, I learned in my step study it's okay to be a work in progress. And number four, I learned from my step study, I am one of those people and darn proud of it. After leaving Savannah Christian Church in 2010, I joined the staff of Impact Christian Church in Woodland Park, Colorado, where my role was to lead worship and lead Celebrate Recovery, which I did. This was a pivotal season of growth for me, and uh, God had us stay in Colorado for four awesome years. 2014, I moved back to Stewart, Florida, where I served as a pastor of worship and community care at Covenant Fellowship Baptist Church. We launched Celebrate Recovery there in February of 2014, and to this day, it's still going. Our time at, at that church came to an unexpected and rather hurtful end in August of 2016. It was a rough landing, not just for me, but for my entire family. And after our departure, we found that we as a family needed to take time to catch our breath, to heal, to hear from God as to what the next steps were, and to trust his timing in all things. I spend more time than ever with, with my sponsor, Todd. I'm so thankful for Todd in my life. I spent the next two and a half years not being on staff of a church, but learning about who I am and whose I am and how to hold things loosely, how to trust God, and who really has control of my life. Through those couple of years, I discovered that my identity is not in my credentials or in my positions. By going back through the steps with, with Todd during that season of time, I was reminded that I've been forgiven for so much. Therefore, I can and have extended forgiveness for those church leaders who made our landing so rough at that church. I've also been able to see my part in that chapter of my story as well. Thanks very large in part to my time spent with Todd. I continue to learn how to live uh, in such a way where I'm not trying to control all the outer circumstances all around me or other people's choices. I am also seeing more clearly that God is safe for me to trust even when people are not. Therefore, I don't have to live in fear. To the newcomer who knows exactly why you're here, getting to CR is the first big hurdle you've overcome. Don't waste that effort. You're here, so keep coming back. To the newcomer who doesn't know why you are here, 
Just keep coming back. You'll see why in time. Trust that you are not here by accident. You are in the right place. God is good and has healed so much of my brokenness thus far with more to go. Because I, I will never arrive. But I believe he desires for me to be free, to live life reasonably happy for now so I can be supremely happy with him forever. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah 57, 18 and 19. Every time I share my testimony, I cry right here. I'm so sorry. Isaiah 57, 18 and 19 says, I have seen what they do, but I will heal them anyway. I will lead them and, and comfort those who mourn. Then words of praise will be on their lips. May they have peace both near and far, for I will heal them all, says the Lord. Thanks for letting me share. Hey, let's hear it for Jimmy one more time. Hey, we got a focus question for you. It says this, what keeps you from maintaining your conscious contact with God? So we're currently on steps 10 on 11, and so what keeps you from maintaining that? What distracts you from that? Let's stand, close with the serenity prayer, and then uh, we'll head off to group because we're running a few moments late. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever and the next. Amen. Amen.